Strike stops buses in Metro Vancouver for the second day. Dozens of Montreal seniors' homes show fire safety issues but face no legal consequences. Canada's population is booming, but access to family doctors hasn't kept pace. The U.S. and U.K. have conducted fresh airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen with Canada's support, and 27 reported dead in Donetsk. Good morning. It's Tuesday, January 23rd. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. We start this morning in Vancouver, where it's day two of a 48-hour strike by 180 workers, which continues to impact bus services. CBC's Akshay Kulkarni and Chad Pawson report that job action by transit workers represented by QP Local 4500 comes three weeks after the workers began refusing overtime as a pressure tactic. QP representative Liam O'Neill said that the union is looking to further escalate job action. Talks between the union and the Coast Mountain Bus Company conducted with the assistance of veteran labor mediator Vince Reddy have failed to produce a new collective agreement, according to O'Neill. He said this, quote, We went through over 20 hours of talks with CNBC with the assistance of the mediator, and while we brought solutions and compromise, they tried to bully us into accepting their proposal. We will continue our overtime ban, and then we will have to plan our next escalation. Unquote. TransLink says its other services will still run during the strike. However, QP sent out a bulletin on Sunday warning members of potential disruptions at SkyTrain. Tony Rebello with QP Local 7000 said Sunday that members wouldn't be crossing lines should they be set up around SkyTrain stations. The bulletin said QP 4500 has made a Labor Relations Board complaint against TransLink, the BC Rapid Transit Company, West Coast Express, and ProTrans for trying to, quote, reduce the impact, unquote, on transit riders during the escalating strike action. And folks, look for Facebook groups within Metro Vancouver to help people get to work during the strike. Bus strikes are always inconvenient, but they are less inconvenient if we're able to carpool and get to where we need to go and allow the workers to walk off the job for as long as they need. Next to Montreal, where more than a quarter of private seniors' residences were not in compliance with fire safety requirements last year. Frédéric Xavier Duhamel in the Globe and Mail reports that although fire department documents show that issues included a lack of up-to-date alarm systems and sprinklers, only a fraction of owners were facing judicial proceedings as a result. Duhamel explains that seniors aged 65 years and older have the highest rate of fire-related deaths, according to Statistics Canada, and that mobility limitations of residents mean proper planning and safety standards are crucial to save lives. Yet, through a Freedom of Information request to the Service de Sécurité d'Incendie de Montréal, Duhamel found that out of 187 retirement homes, 49 had non-compliant means of evacuation. Only six of those residences were facing judicial proceedings. A similar pattern emerged in other fire prevention areas, including non-compliant alarm systems, sprinklers, and fire safety plans. Zuamel writes that the Globe and Mail previously reported that in 2009, the Montreal Fire Department stopped validating fire safety plans in locations where they are required. This was one of several issues uncovered last year in the aftermath of a fatal blaze in the city's historic district. There, it seems like lax enforcement may have contributed to the deaths of seven people. 
And this news comes almost 10 years to the day where 32 people were killed at a fire at La Résidence du Havre in L'Ile Verte. Only two of the 20 people who survived that night are still alive today. And next to national news. An increase in the Canadian population has put a crunch on healthcare access, reports CBC's John Paul Tasker. Canada is not training enough doctors to keep up with the population growth. Dr. Kathleen Ross, president of the Canadian Medical Association and a family physician, told Tasker that Canada isn't producing nearly enough homegrown primary care doctors to keep up with the country's health needs. Ross said this, quote, the truth is our healthcare system is on its knees. We're not meeting the needs of the population. Our workers are burning out in droves. There are definitely not enough physicians working and training. We need to train more. We are simply not keeping up with demand and with the number of people who are retiring, unquote. One national survey conducted by the Our Care Initiative showed that the number of Canadians without regular access to a family doctor or nurse practitioner has spiked from 4.5 million in 2019 to an estimated 6.5 million in 2023. And uh, hey, I'm among those statistics because my doctor has gone on sick leave and we have no replacement doctor. These numbers are especially worrying considering that there is a stagnant number of people who are going into medical residency programs. At the same time, Canada's population has grown significantly. Federal data suggests that as these trends continue, Canada will need roughly 48,900 more family doctors by 2031. Some provincial governments are working to expand medical school capacity after years of low growth. Growth that's low because provinces put caps on how many students can become doctors. And that's one of the problems with the way that taskers frame this. It seems like there's just no reason, no one's to blame for stagnant admissions other than maybe Canadians are not trying to become doctors anymore. I mean, this article also doesn't mention how much it costs to become a doctor. That's also part of all of this problem. But the provinces have intentionally put a cap on these programs. And so here's the result. Now, Ontario has promised to add 449 postgraduate medical training spaces over the next five years. The University of Prince Edward Island will open a medical school in fall of 2025. And Simon Fraser plans to establish a new medical school at its Surrey campus in 2026. But even with these added spaces, the numbers suggest fewer doctors are training to practice family medicine, a crucial gatekeeper role in our publicly funded system. The CMA estimates that the gap between the number of family doctors leaving the profession and ones coming in is about 1,000 every year. The federal government is looking to tackle the problem another way. The story explains that Employment Minister Randy Boissonneau said that Ottawa is rolling out more money to better integrate foreign-trained health professionals. Boissonneau announced about $86 million to help integrate 6,600 international professionals in the coming years. That figure isn't just doctors, but also includes dentists, radiologists, nurses, and others. It'll help fill some short-term gaps, but there's not a structural solution here. Canada cannot rely on poaching healthcare professionals from other countries, often paid at their taxpayer expenses. Why doesn't Canada put that money into training healthcare professionals here? Why not incentivize medical students to train in areas that are particular shortages, such as family medicine? Or basically, why do the provinces refuse to allow medical admissions to grow? You'll remember from months ago on this podcast that students were fleeing Canada, desperate to find residency positions and ending up abroad. 
Often when they do their medical residency abroad, they meet someone, they fall in love, they have children, they don't come back, they stay abroad. It's a simple thing to fix. But you know what? These questions are not posed by this and they're not answered by this. And the reality is actually the real reason is because this crisis is being used to push privatization on the system. That's the real reason. And CBC will never write that because CBC is implicated in it as well. To international news now, the United States and the United Kingdom have conducted new joint airstrikes against Houthi rebels in Yemen. The BBC's Ruth Comerford and Frank Gardner write that the Pentagon said yesterday's strikes hit eight targets, including an underground storage site and Houthi missile and surveillance capability. The Houthis have been targeting ships they say are linked to Israel and the West that travel through the important Red Sea trade route. Both countries say they are trying to protect the, quote, free flow of commerce, unquote, by launching what the alliance is calling Operation Prosperity Guardian. A joint statement issued by the Pentagon confirmed a, quote, additional round of proportionate and necessary strikes. Our aim remains to de-escalate tensions and restore stability in the Red Sea, bracket, de-escalate tensions by bombing people. Are we supposed to believe this? Unbracket. But let us reiterate our warning to Houthi leadership. We will not hesitate to defend lives and the free flow of commerce in one of the world's most critical waterways in the face of continued threats, unquote. My God, lives and the free flow of commerce. Remember, the Houthis have not actually killed anybody, right? They haven't actually killed anybody yet. So there's no lives at stake yet. And uh, the free flow of commerce is far more important than the lives of people in Gaza. Mm -hmm. This is the eighth strike by the U.S. against Houthi targets in Yemen. It is the second joint operation with the U.K. after joint strikes were carried out earlier this month. The joint statement said the strikes were carried out with support from Australia, Bahrain, the Netherlands and Canada. UK Defence Secretary Grant Shapps described the strikes as, quote, self-defence against the Houthis' intolerable attacks on merchant shipping, unquote. Close to the bottom of the story, we finally learn why the Houthis are launching these attacks in response to Israel's military ground operation in Gaza and the more than 25,000 people that Israel has killed. But the article doesn't mention the fact that the Houthis have said they'll cease attacking Israeli-linked ships once the IDF withdraws from Gaza. So there's your solution right there, folks. Nowhere in the story also doesn't mention the fact that last week Biden admitted that airstrikes on Houthis were not working, but they're going to do it anyway. And finally, to Donetsk, which is currently occupied by Russia. The Associated Press is reporting that at least 27 people were killed and 25 people were wounded at a market due to Ukrainian shelling. The news comes from what AP calls a, quote, Moscow-installed official, unquote, Denis Pushilin. The shells hit a suburb and two children were among the injured, says Pushilin. The AP couldn't verify the report independently, and Ukrainian officials have not commented. Pushilin says that the shells were fired from, quote, the area of Kurahov and Krasnokorivka, unquote. There was also a fire at a chemical transport terminal at the Ust-Luga port in Russia. A gas tank exploded when Ukrainian drones hit it. Ust-Luga is about 165 kilometers south of St. Petersburg. Those are your headlines for Tuesday, January 23rd. I'm Nora. It is Tuesday, folks. It's Tuesday. And guess what? There is a brand new episode of Sandy Nora waiting for you in the next couple of hours. I hope you enjoy it. It's lots of uh, interesting medical stuff. You get to hear what's been going on with Sandy lately. And uh, share it with all your friends. Just like this podcast, share it with all your friends. Tell everybody about Sandy Nora because uh, that's the only way that we grow. You are listening to this podcast at sandianora.com at the Real News Network podcast feed and wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was done with help from Mary Newman. I will talk to you, well, tomorrow, but you tell me again in a few hours.